morning and welcome. Um, as Drew mentioned, today we're going to, this has become a kind of an annual event for us. At the beginning of the year, I usually do a series called What's the World Coming To? And um, it will go for uh, a number of weeks. I haven't decided what that number is yet, but it will go until I am so sick and tired of the topic, I can't think straight anymore. Uh, actually, um, because we are living in uh, tumultuous times, times of tremendous change, uh, sea change that, that is really dramatic, um, I think it's important for us to be able to understand what is the position that God wants us to have in light of things that are happening around us. Uh, there's a lot of difficulty. There's an overwhelming amount of information and data. I've never seen so much stuff being put out there for people to read and digest and just knowing what is true, what is not true, what is speculation, what is fact, what is fake, what is real, who's putting it out there and so forth. The sifting process is overwhelming and uh, I'm like you, I just hope I got it right. But um, it's important because I want to begin this whole series talking about something uh, that maybe is, is usually comes up right away with people, and that is about where's the U.S. and all this. I call it America and the end of the world. So if you don't mind, if you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 11, and I want to begin reading there, and then I'll follow with an explanation of how that passage fits into the greater context of the end times. Oh, and by the way, as you're turning there in your app or your Bible, um, I just want to mention that we are averaging like five new families in children's ministry every week, and uh, we really want to begin to resume uh, a second service children's ministry to kind of uh, lighten the load, but that requires people who are willing to uh, be available to serve in that second service. So um, if you're interested, contact uh, Susan or Tammy down at the Children's Ministry and let them know. You can go down there or you can call them on Monday and they would be more than glad to talk with you and tell you the process of getting involved. Uh, just a thought. Would you stand with me as we begin by reading this passage, though? Revelation chapter 11, <clears throat> beginning in verse 15. It says, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there was loud voices in heaven, which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we look to your word today, that we would do it with a heart of reverence, that we would do it with minds that are set on knowing you and bringing our lives into ever greater conformity to your purpose and your design for our lives. That, Lord, we know with certainty that the day will come when you will set up your kingdom upon the earth, but our prayer, Lord, is how shall we live until then? What is your purpose for us between now and that day. We ask you, God, to guide us and inform us. In Jesus' holy name, amen. You may be seated. 
I want to begin, as I said, by putting this passage into somewhat of a, hopefully a correct chronological sequence. I wouldn't kid you that people will have different opinions as how I've set this up, but that's why we have freedom of speech, because it allows other people to be wrong. Um, But the book of Revelation begins with John being instructed by God to write down essentially three different things. Uh, The first he's supposed to write about his past experience. He says, write down what you have seen. And that's what chapter one of Revelation is, what John has seen. He saw Christ manifested in his glory and giving him the instructions to share the message that God was going to give him. The second thing he was to write down was what is now, and that is referring to the present, or his present for that meeting, uh, chapters two and three, where he has a vision of the seven churches. So he moves in chapter one from a vision of Christ to chapter two and three, a vision of the churches. And then finally, we begin in chapter four all the way to the end of the book. He talks about what will take place later, literally talking about the future. This is a vision of the future. The Greek is metatato, which means after these things. And so he's talking about these are the things that are going to take place in the end times. Uh, The events of the last section, the metatauta section, that is described by Jesus in Matthew 24, 21 as the great tribulation. Uh, It's a megathlipsis in Greek. It basically, it's a time of trouble and turmoil, but it's of magnificent or very large mega dimensions in their life. He said, in fact, it's such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor will ever be. So it removes any kind of confusion. The world has seen many major crises in its history, but he said this is one that will have no parallel in previous human history. It'll stand out, it'll be ultimate not only in its magnitude, but also in its impact. It will literally change the universe forever. In this period we refer to colloquially, basically, as being the, the tribulation. And the tribulation actually is divided into two three-and-a-half-year sections. We know by the dating, and I don't have time to go into it, but the tribulation, we're told, lasts seven years. And there's a first three-and-a-half, which is called generally the tribulation, and the second three-and-a-half years we call the great tribulation. Or we might even call the first three-and-a-half years the beginning of sorrows, as Jesus referred to it in in Matthew 24, 8, the beginning of birth pains. In other words, it's not an easy time. It's a time of catastrophe. It has certain events that follow one upon another. There are, first, there's seven seals that are broken, and as each seal is broken, something diabolical begins to take place in the world. We begin to see military conflicts, and it numbers large deaths of people. We're talking about the millions upon hundreds of millions of people who perish through warfare and through pestilence and even, to some degree, natural disasters. And then after the seven seals are opened, the last seal opens up to the seven trumpets, and they again are blasted one after another, and with them comes another series of catastrophes, which essentially are God's judgment upon a sinful world. In other words, this is the final awake call that God gives to humanity. And we often wonder about the, the, the terrible uh, savagery of the last seven years of the tribulation period, and we wonder why God does that, and the answer is fairly simple. God is trying to bring people to repentance. 
One of the things we know is C.S. Lewis put it so adeptly. He said that God whispers to us in, in our, our hearts. He, he shouts to us in our rebellion, but he screams at us through a megaphone through our pain that God uses pain to open our eyes and get us to ask questions that we have chosen to ignore. And I think that when we look back on the last year and the unforeseen uh, 2020, as someone said, a year so bad they named it twice, that as we look at the year 2020 and reflect on it, we we come to realize that it was very disruptive, even painfully so, and yet somehow when everything begins to fall apart around us, there is an instinct, even within the atheist, to begin to pray. We call that foxhole mentality, that we suddenly realize that the problems around us are grander than we ourselves. We need some help from outside, and it's probably not going to be in the form of a stimulus check. So the reality is we began to look around for answers. Now, at that three-and-a-half-year point, there's a, several chapters that deal with the events at the middle of the tribulation, and that's where we find the introduction of the mark of the beast. Uh, many people are worried about, you know, they're going to get the mark of the beast if they get a, a flu shot. Well, I don't think the mark of the beast is going to come in that form, although I have a lot to say about that. Anyway, but nonetheless... Uh, uh, and some people say, are you going to get the vaccination when it's available? And I said, absolutely, maybe. But <laughs> the whole point is that these events become really setting up the stage for the last three and a half years of the tribulation, which is called, again, the mega or the great tribulation. And during those three and a half years, it moves from being a, a world that's in catastrophe or crisis to a world that is in cataclysm. And cataclysm means that basically everything is flying apart. Everything is going crazy because then we read that the seven last plagues are poured out upon the earth and the last plague culminates with the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. Again, in Matthew 24, 21, Jesus said of that time, there is unequaled in its severity from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. Now, the question that I am most often asked when we talk about the end times is where does the USA fit into these end time events? And the vast majority of Bible students, I will tell you, will tell you that you cannot find any clear indication or evidence that the USA is present. There are some who say every time you see an eagle mentioned in the Old Testament, that's referring to the United States because that's the symbol of the United States. It's a symbol of the Russian government, too. It's a symbol of the German government. In fact, there are a lot of countries that use the eagle because they're kind of cool. But the bottom line is... Uh, that doesn't really prove much. I think it's more of what people want to see. We would like to see ourselves as being a major political force and player on the world scene up until the very end. And if that's your, your thing, man, go for it. I don't want to be here. But basically, they can't really conceive of the United States not being a global power broker on the world scene. And in that sense, America is, Americans are just like most residents and citizens of great nations in the past. As Sir John Glubb said in his famed book, The Fate of Nations, he said they imagined that their preeminence would last forever, always rich, always powerful. 
Yet historians over the past 2,000 years, beginning with Polybius in 200 B.C., have noted over and over again that every great nation eventually will face its demise and that that demise is essentially unavoidable. And not because people or nations are fated to do so, as might be thought from Glub's book title, but rather as Machiavelli said 500 years ago, times may change, but human nature doesn't. Given the same circumstances, humans always make the same choices. And might I add, most often, those are the wrong choices, the wrong decisions. Now, I'm not saying or predicting that the U.S. won't exist in the end times. Uh, I'm not a YouTube prophet, and I don't have a Q clearance. So, I mean, I, I don't have any inside info that I can say what's going to happen. I, as I've said before, are much like a, a observer of the weather. I, I try to look at the dynamics that are going on in the world and see what fits most closely to what the Bible says. I'm a Bible student, I'm also a student of history, and I find those things are helpful in developing a perspective. But the thing I do see is that um, the, the United States cannot, in its present form and influence, be a major player in the end times. And unfortunately, something is going to change in the U.S. in the end times that's because of what Scripture foretells us. Currently, the United States is the one major obstacle preventing the rise of one world government. The current administration has been the most rapidly and resiliently and um, relentless in not allowing that to happen uh, because until that happens, the beast cannot come on the scene, which happens in the beginning of the book of, Tribu uh, book of Revelation. So that uh, this one world government that the Bible foretells coming upon the earth cannot happen with the United States being in its present form as really being the dominant military and economic hegemony. I don't know if you're familiar with the term hegemony. Hegemony literally means leadership dominance. The United States has a world leadership dominance militarily and economically that would prohibit any other thing rising in its place which is concerning because I believe on one hand that the United States has been placed in that position by the hand of God. And I believe it for four reasons, not because you and I have some inherent virtue about us that, you know, because I'm born in America, I'm born in the USA, that that somehow makes us better or more significant or more value or more loved by God. I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think that God has shown us grace. He's shown us mercy because of a few very basic things. And the very first one is the fact that we, the prominence of the church of Jesus Christ in this nation's history, which concerns me because that is obviously waning, and we'll cover that in future messages. But also, we have been the world's unparalleled supporter of global evangelism and mission work more so than any other country in the history of the world. If America stops supporting overseas missions, overseas missions stop being overseas missions. They'll, they'll run out of funding very quickly. We thirdly are a faithful supporter of Israel, and God said of Israel from the very beginning, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And all you have to do is look at the nations around the world that curse Israel, and things are not going well for them. 
And so that support for Israel has been one of the benefits that has come to us as a nation favoring God's chosen people and his plan of the end times. And then lastly, I might add a fourth. That's our our global charity. Americans are the most generous people on the planet. When we've had the opportunity to conquer and control other countries, as Rome and other empires have done, we have done just the opposite. We have invested literally billions and trillions of dollars in helping other people, hoping to help other people become independent and restore their nationhood and their national identity. There's no other example of that happening any time in the history of the world. So there is a goodness about America. I mean, when, when I hear people talking about America, they're really criticizing the fact that we're not perfect. But when it comes to nationhood and empire, we are the best that the world has ever seen. And that's because we have founding principles based upon the Bible that governs loving our neighbor, not bombing him. Okay? But that blessing, again, is contingent upon a continuing goodness, something that is increasingly, I would say, up for question. Increasingly, I see our our nation succumbing to the same self-destructive sinful behaviors that have have brought down other great nations in the past. Again, so many historians have studied the rise and fall of nations. As I said, going back to Polybius in 200 B.C. And even in our own time, the, the Durants and, and, and Schlesinger and, and uh, Toynbee and, and, and Gibbons and so forth, they all come to the same few defining elements of the collapse of a great nation. First of all, they say it begins with an indifference to religion. That when there's no longer a conscience towards God, people begin to operate with little or no conscience. So that morally there's a decline. The secondly, he says, it increases materialism. We become more about the acquisition of things and stuff and power and control, even people, rather than being concerned about the things that God is concerned about. The thirdly, he says, there's an increase of divorce and the collapse of the family. The nations are built upon families, and when they fall apart, as they are crumbling so quickly today, then we know that the nation cannot sustain itself. A nation that has half of its citizens growing up without a fatherly influence is a nation that cannot and has never before survived. It's a death knell. Then there is, fourthly, unrestrained sexual immorality. And today, I I don't even know how to, I I find it incomprehensible where we are in terms of looking at sexual relationships as if they're a mere nothingness. And then last of all, corruption of the ruling class. You see, when you combine these things together, these sins, it leads not to an external conflict, but rather an internal corruption, an internal decay so that all it takes is for a opposing nation or nations simply to give a slight economic, social, or military push, and suddenly the whole thing collapses upon its own rotting core. And that has happened again and again and again. Historians tell us that it takes only 10 generations or about 250 years for a nation, a great nation, to go through all eight stages of its life cycle. 
It starts with what Glub called the outburst, literally the, the beginning, the birth of a nation. And then there is conquest, the idea that they acquire territory, an expanding territory. And then there comes the age of commerce. Suddenly they begin to start businesses and manufacturing and begin to export more than they consume. And then comes affluence. They begin to see a rise in lifestyle and, and wealth as everybody begins to prosper. That prosperity allows, leads to the age of intellect where people now make enough money, they have time to actually study something more than basic survival techniques. People before were just simply trying to say, I just want to be able to pay my bills, feed my family, find a house, take care of my basic needs, but suddenly now I have so much that I can begin to become a scholar, I can begin to study, I can begin to become educated. But it's at that point that we become educated beyond our own good many times. The growth of schools of philosophy and theoretical sciences and theoretical morality open up all sorts of doors to all sorts of ideas that may not necessarily be based on reality, but for people who live in ivory towers, you can believe anything because you don't have to ever try them and see if they work. And so we begin to live in this fantasy world, the imagination. And that's when it begins the downward slide from decadence. Suddenly it becomes an openness to all sorts of things that before would have been unthinkable. And that leads to a decline and finally the total collapse of a nation. The question that many historians are asking right now, many sociologists and others are asking, where is America in this cycle? And most would conclude that we're somewhere between decadence and decline, but most likely in the place of decline. Even though there is a battle being waged in this country to pull back the country to a better time, it doesn't seem to be succeeding that well. Nevertheless, I'm, I'm of the opinion that America is coming to the end of its divinely ordained purpose and because of two things that have to happen. Primarily, as I said before, the United States cannot be the uh, hegemonic leader of the world as it is right now and for the Antichrist to rise to power. So what I see is one possibility, one of po two possibilities here, is that the U.S. loses its great nation status. It slides into mediocrity as a nation because of incompetent, corrupt, morally and ethically compromised leadership that we begin to find the nation is run by people who are driven more by their personal ambitions and greed than they are the welfare of the nations. Or there's one other possibility. The rapture comes, takes the church away. I'm kind of voting for that one. <laughs> Leaving the U.S. to be run by incompetent, corrupt, morally and ethically compromised leadership <laughs> who would be more than willing to sell their nation down the road for a beachside mansion. John Glove noted that in his Fate of Nations that there's no exception except for one exception historically to this pattern. And it wouldn't be surprised me that the one anomaly we have is a country that has been known historically for its anomalies. Uh, 
and that's the kingdom of Judah. In 721 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians. We refer to them from that point on as the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Not exactly correct factually or demographically, but nonetheless, the northern kingdom of Israel disappeared from history. But in 705, just 15 years later, the Assyrians set their eyes on the southern kingdom of Judah. King Hezekiah was reigning at that time, one of the last few great godly kings of Judah. And they came within a hair's breadth of total destruction. But the nation was miraculously saved in the 11th hour because they heeded God's injunction where he said, and you've heard it so many times in 2 Corinthians 7.14, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Judah miraculously survived. And I don't have time to go into it. You can read about it in the Chronicles and in the Kings and in the, in the book of Isaiah. But all oh, the kingdom survived, it was weakened, but it survived for another hundred years until the death of the only godly king following Hezekiah. Seven kings ruled after him, and they were all ungodly men. Manasseh, he, it said, was the most wicked of all the kings of both Israel and Judah, and he reigned for 55 years. And he set a tempo of wickedness that the nation was never able to recover from. Even though Josiah attempted to bring revival, but a hundred years after they had been spared from the Assyrians, Jeremiah tells us the Babylonians came and ultimately destroyed the city and the nation. This time, the second time, the threat was, came from Babylon it was the same threat that they had seen under the Assyrians, but what was different was the heart of the people. As Jeremiah reveals to us in his sixth and seventh chapter of his prophecy, I summarize his words. He says the following, that the word of the Lord has become a reproach. People don't want to know what the Bible says. They don't want to know what God says. He says they have no delight in it. There's no pleasure in it. Instead, he said the false prophets have healed the brokenness of my people superficially. They say, we're here to heal you, but he says their healing is all superficial. It's putting a Band-Aid on a saber wound. They're saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. They were not even ashamed. They did not even know how to blush. They do not, but he says to them, do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You see, they believed that God had spared them 100 years earlier because he was protecting his temple. And God says to them through Jeremiah, do you remember the tabernacle in Shiloh? When you turned against me, I allowed it to be destroyed and overrun and carried away captive. Do you think I feel any more commitment to the temple that Solomon built than that tabernacle that Moses built? It's not the temple. He says, it's you that's the issue here. He goes on to say, will you steal murder, 
commit adultery and perjury and follow other gods? Build the high places to burn your sons and daughters in the fire? Something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind, and then come and stand before me and say, we are safe? Safe to do all these detestable things? Reform your ways, and I will let you live. But they didn't. Instead, what they did is they imprisoned the prophet who brought the message. They sought to kill him and would have succeeded had it not been for the hand of God. And so the second time it happened, they did not escape, but were destroyed because they refused to repent. As I think about this dynamic, it makes me wonder about America. And I put the question this way, are we in Isaiah or are we in Jeremiah? I mean, I don't know. Are we in the time of Isaiah where we're humbling ourselves and we're praying and God is going to, in the 11th hour, by a hair breath, deliver us from evil? Or are we in Jeremiah where God says, I'm done. I'm wondering if January 6th will mark the beginning of the death of the republic or the beginning of our last chance to seek his faith. Or will God move at the 11th hour because we have humbled ourselves, we've prayed, we've sought his face, we've turned away from our wicked ways? Or is it at a point where God's plan is to diminish the United States through leadership, leadership of a cognitively impaired, ethically and morally compromised individual whose entire career has been marked by mediocrity and mendacity, You may want to look that word up. I don't want to explain it. And has formed a leadership team chosen based upon chromosomes and ethnicity and not merit. Committed to promoting a failed progressive socialist Marxist program that has never worked (laughs) except for the people in power. And if that's the case, then our future, I think, looks rather bleak. And it's not like the world is cheering us on and hoping for the best. In fact, the World Economic Forum, which we'll be talking about when we get into world, the issue of economics and one world currency, uh, had issued their global economic outlook. And uh, going forward after the great reset that we're supposed to be entering into, and they predicted by the year 2030, that's 10 years from now, they said, quote, U.S. dominance is over. Now, if this were just some whack mole on the internet, I I would just say, okay, whatever, but you have to understand who the World Economic Forum is. It's a community of the richest, most powerful, most influential leaders in business, military, economy, uh, media, technology, I mean, it's you get there by invitation only. It is the richest, the most powerful, and you go through the list. I mean, there have regular people like uh, Al Gore and Bill Clinton, but also Bill Gates and all of the, I mean, the whole who's who's of everybody. Prince Charles is one of the lead spokesmen, so that fills me with all sorts of confidence. (laughs) 
But it's interesting because they, they come right and admit it that they are using the pandemic as a foil. That the UN, the EU, the IMF, the World Bank, big tech, media, global corporations are all proposing what they call the Great Reset because it's worked out so well for them. When you realize that companies like Walmart or, or uh, the big box stores and the food chains, their profits have soared because they can cut their staff and you still have to buy the goods. I was, we flew down Christmas morning to Southern California to see my, well, see my kids and my, but really to see my grandkids. <laughs> they were invited to be there. That's something to say. But uh, there are no restaurants open. They just have takeout. And everywhere we went, it looked like we were trying to go to Chick-fil-A. Which I don't understand that either. But (laughs) But Klaus Schwab, who is the founder and chief leader spokesman for the World Economic Forum, said, quote, the pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. If you begin to dig into the details of their website, as I have done, you find that the reset involves essentially the largest transfer of wealth (laughs) that has ever taken place in the history of the world. Basically, They are seeking to consolidate economic power on an unprecedented level, to transfer it from the control of nations and their citizens to the elites, of which they see themselves as being the key. The leaders of the major corporations, banks, and their useful idiots in the permanent political class. What it does not include is we the people. It removes power from you and it puts it in the hands of what they call themselves as stakeholders. Stakeholders means you have a invested interest in something and they see themselves as being more vested and more interested, especially when you realize that Amazon alone doubled their profit margins in the last year. Global corporations have increased their value by 25% as a consequence of COVID. If they succeed, we will no longer be the land of the free. I'm pretty sure we're no longer the land of the brave. As we cower in compliance to their demands, their rules, their mandates, no matter how unfounded, how inconsistent, how unsupportable or ridiculous they might be. I find it humorous that, you know, our governor made the statement, he said, Every life is important, and one life lost is a tragedy. So love your neighbors and stay home. (laughs) At the same time, you know what the major cause of death in 2020 is? Not COVID by a long shot. Abortion. Nearly 43 million children were aborted 
in the world last year. That's like an entire nation just disappearing. And we always ask that question, why don't those lives matter? Whatever the short-term future holds, what we do know is that the, what the end of the story is. That there's only one kingdom that will be standing when the dust settles. As we read in the text today, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And of that kingdom, we are given a promise. Paul spoke it in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Though the future of this nation is uncertain, there is no uncertainty about his coming kingdom at least of those of us who choose to believe. You know, the truth of the matter is that I love America. I never understood how much I loved it until I had a chance to start traveling around the world and seeing what's going on in other places. <laughs> and each time I come back, I'm just so thankful to be upon this ground I'm humbled to be counted as one of her citizens. I'm blessed to share in the incredible bounty that has been us. I cherish our freedoms, which do not exist in much, if not most, of the world. And I'm committed in my own life to do everything in my power to preserve and protect those liberties, those freedoms, those indelible rights, undeniable rights. But the greater challenge is how I should respond if those freedoms are lost and if despotism begins to rule. As is the case for most of our brethren in the world, in China, Christians are being rounded up, they're being imprisoned, as well as anybody of religious faith, of any kind of faith, because it cannot be called, tolerated. There's only one faith that's allowed in China, and that is faith in the Communist Party and Chairman Xi. India, Iran, Nigeria, 2,000 Christians were martyred in Nigeria this last year. And certainly throughout the Muslim world, Muslim world particularly in places like Iran and Saudi Arabia, and Qatar, and on and on it goes. And it leaves us with answering a, a more important question. When Peter said in 2 Peter 3, he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is a really kind of an accumulative term of last day's event, not a single 24-hour day, but that we might call it the days of the Lord, that last season, the end of time. And he says, it will come upon us like a thief. It will be something that will catch people off guard and by surprise if they're not already in the process of watching and waiting. He said, the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And then he asked the question, since everything will be destroyed. Think about that. Everything will be destroyed. Your favorite, fish, your favorite fishing rod that car that you've been tricking out for 20 years and have so much money into it you can't sell it. 
all the bells and bangles and stuff you have, all the silver you've set aside and the gold and the stocks and the bonds, the 401ks that are soon to become 201ks. He says, since everything is being destroyed in this way, I mean, think about that, the elimination of everything that you look to. What kind of people ought you to be, he asks. What kind of people ought you to be? And he answered the question. You ought to be holy and godly as you look forward to the day of God. Looking forward to the day of God, that as things become less and less attractive here, it just invariably causes us to look forward to the day when we're with him. Now, there's some of us have a definite advantage in that process. At my age, it's not that far away. 20 years ago was that long ago. I'm in that place that old men find themselves were saying, it's been that long? <laughs> it's so embarrassing to be repeating my father's words, <laughs> which I judged him for. <laughs> but the question I have to ask myself, I would ask you, are you looking forward to the day when you go home to be with him? Or are you so busy looking for something else in this life that you don't want to think about it. I've often told the story, and it's true, I'm not making it up, that before my wife and I were married, she shared with me, she prayed that we'd get married before the Lord came back. And sure enough, we got married before the Lord came back, and then she was praying, Lord, come quickly. <laughs> Never figured out why. Are we looking forward, as Peter says, to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, the home where everything is right? There is a toiling, there is a churning inside the heart of every man, woman, and child on the planet of how can I take the, the broken, disjointed, fractured, twisted things of this world and particularly of my own life, how can I make them right? How do we make this right? And we hear people all the time saying, well, you need to make this right. Yet the truth is we have no way to make anything right because if we did something wrong, we can say we're sorry and we can do our best, but you can't completely undo a wrong. God alone is the only one who can touch our lives and heal them in a way where they're right. My real point today is not to give you a, a historical or a political or even to prognosticate about the future. It's to really put this thought in your mind. Are you preparing your life for eternity? Because if you are, November 6th, I mean, excuse me, January 6th, January 20th will come and go and it may be disappointing or not, I don't know. But if that takes you down, if that takes you out, if that throws you in despair and depression, you're hoping in the wrong thing. 
As Chuck Colson said so many years ago, the second coming doesn't come on Air Force One. I am a natural-born citizen of the United States of America, but there is another citizenship that has priority. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, which was particularly poignant for them because they were one of those cities that had been honored by Rome and given Roman citizenship to every, every person in the city. A great honor, great privilege, great benefits to that. He says, no, but our citizenship, the thing that we take pride in is not our citizenship to this city or this empire. It's my citizenship in heaven that is the thing for which I live for. That's the badge of honor I wear. And he says, because of that, we eagerly await a Savior from there, from heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus made it abundantly clear when he stood before Pilate that the final destination isn't here, but it's in heaven. In chapter 18 and 19, I won't go through it all, but he reiterates, he said, my kingdom, my realm, my realm of ruling authority, my authority are not of this world. So how should I live my life in such tumultuous times as we are in? Well, as I shared briefly on Christmas from Psalm 37 where David said, do not fret. That literally means to be visibly worried and anxious. Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious towards wrongdoers. I think sometimes good people get caught up in that, saying, we're going to fight fire with fire. If they cheat, we're going to cheat better. It's kind of a trap. It's a trap. Because in God's eyes, wrong is wrong. No matter what your intentions were, it's wrong. Instead, he said, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in this. Doesn't that drive you crazy? They lie, they cheat, they steal. And they get the beachside mansion. I would just settle for the beach. But don't fret because of him who prospers in his wicked schemes. Cease from anger, forsake wrath, and do not fret. It only leads to evil doing. You see, whatever happens, God's got it under control. What we need to make sure is that includes us, that we're under his control and that we're not driven by self-righteous passions. In Proverbs 3.25, Solomon said, Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor the onslaught of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Resist the temptation to see any man as being your savior, your deliverance, 
the key to your happiness, prosperity, or safety. Safety comes from the Lord, Scripture says. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would help us to turn the settings of our hearts to a place where our ultimate destination is you. That God, that there would be just this spiritual GPS that has written heaven in that point of destination so that our eyes are always focused on what's ahead and where we're ultimately going. Deliver us from (laughs) counting the fence posts and street lights and traffic and all the things that are part of the busyness, the craziness of our journey through this world. Lord, let us be observers of the world we're in, but don't let us ever become deceived into thinking that those places, those observations define our destination. What is our destination is one day we will part from this carbon-based unit called our bodies and we will pass into the heavenlies to be with you forever and ever. That's what we were created for. We pray, oh God, that we would begin to think in that way. We ask in Jesus' holy name.